0: turn me to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 28 through chapter 3 verse 10. 1 John 2, 28 through three ten. We have been looking at these paragraphs for the last several weeks and I believe today we're f- going to finish them. Uh, 1 John 2, 28 through three ten. I want to read the whole context and then we're going to focus on the second half of these uh, verses. So 1 John 2, 28. You follow along. In your copy of the scriptures as I read, uh, John wrote, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone deceive you, lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Let's pray together for a moment, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we pray like the psalmist did, that you would open our eyes, that we might see wondrous things in your law. We have your Bibles open before us, and that is our prayer this morning as we gather together this morning under this scripture, that you would open our eyes. You are the master of our eyes, and we are desperate to have the Holy Spirit teach us you, you are the master of this text. You know everything that's in this, in this paragraph. You're the master of every word. You're the author of it. You know every detail that we're to notice. You're, 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 you're aware of every nuance that's here. So would you please open our eyes? The eyes of our hearts and minds so that we would see wonderful things in it. Oh. God, preserve me by your kindness from boring these dear people with the word of God. Great sin to bore people with the Bible. But you, oh please be our teacher so that we would see wonderful things in here. (laughs) Things that would delight us, cause us to rejoice. Things that would comfort us and confront us. Things that would make us more like the Lord Jesus. Open our eyes that we would see wondrous things in your word. This morning, for a moment, Father, even as as we think of it further, Lord, we we would pray. John prayed so well for many of those who are burdened. There are other burdens that we are aware of. Father, this morning, I I think of our brothers and sisters in China. We haven't heard about this. We don't know enough about this. But, uh, Lord, we are aware of great persecution that is breaking out against brothers and sisters, pastors and elders of churches being arrested and taken off to prison. Lord, in your word, uh, well, not in your word, in the song that we sang this morning, we sang about the slave being our brother, and in your name, all oppression will cease. Lord, we pray for these men and women who have been arrested. Lord, we pray for the sheep in the churches. Uh, Zechariah the prophet said, you'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. We know that was about the Lord Jesus, and yet it's happening in these churches too, as they're losing their earthly shepherds. Oh, these are our brothers and sisters. Someday before your throne, we're going to hear the stories that they'll tell us of the suffering that they endured. Now, I pray today that you would help them to avoid the temptations that must be common to them in a prison cell. The temptation to think that the Communist Party or the Chinese government or a a police officer sitting across the table from them, the, the temptation to think that that person is stronger than you are that that person matters more than you do or is more significant, that 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 person is able to hurt them in ways that are beyond your ability to control, save them from fear, preserve them from renouncing the name of the Lord Jesus. Pray for their children as they see their parents being taken away, that you would care for these little ones. And that they would come to love the Lord Jesus, even as they see their parents suffering for his name. Help them, God. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come and that you would indeed bring an end to all oppression. That's what you will do. So come and and call us to yourself and rescue these brothers and sisters of ours that are overseas. Show your grace to them, we pray, in Christ's name. We say these things together saying, amen. We have reached the stage in our family when the children are starting to outgrow the adults. Uh, And the champion so far of this is my uh, 15-year-old nephew, Danny. He's taller than all of us except for uh, his father. And um, I knew this was coming. I I tried to be gracious about it. Last summer when we saw him, he was close to being taller than I was. And I said to him, Danny, at Christmas, Thanksgiving, when we see you, you're going to be taller than me, and I think it's going to be awesome. I can't wait. Now, you know that because we're in this stage of, uh, uh, of life, you know what happens inevitably when we get together. We'll be standing around the kitchen, and somebody will say, I think you're taller than you. No, I'm not. No, she's not. Yes, I, I think so. And you know what happens in the next... 10 seconds, right? The height off, okay? So, stand back, stand back to back. So, you stand back to back and you know what you do at this moment in time, right? You arch your back, you stretch every, you reach your neck high, you use every muscle and bone you have to reach to the heavens just for the comparison, right? How many times have you done that? Well, If uh, you understand that, I think that you will understand something that the Bible expects of us when it comes to the Lord Jesus, because we're his followers, and because we have been captured by who he is, we are always stretching, always stretching, always reaching, trying to get to his height. He sets the standard, we're his followers, we're imitating him, we're stretching always to get to his height. If the apostle John were here and he was the one who was measuring us off, he'd want us to stretch in at least three ways as we read the Bible. He'd want us to stretch in our commitment to the truth. We believe the Bible, we believe the Bible when it says who Jesus is. We believe the Bible when it says what Jesus has done. We're stretching to reach that height. John would want us to stretch to measure the standard of Jesus' love we haven't gotten there yet but in 1st john chapter 3 the apostle wrote how do we know what love is we know love in this way jesus christ laid down his life for us and so brothers and sisters we ought to lay down our lives for one another we're stretching aren't we to reach his height we're in this paragraph these paragraphs that we just read john would want us to stretch to the height of the lord jesus righteousness his purity his sinlessness Here's a couple paragraphs that are penned by the Apostle John because he knew, he knew that as we're after being like Jesus in this way, uh, we would need help. If I can change the image a little bit, we're in a tug of war against our own hypocrisy, or against our own unrighteousness, and John, in writing these paragraphs, is standing on the sidelines saying, pull, pull, pull. Uh, most of you have probably seen the launch of a rocket or a space shuttle, something that NASA's launching. We, most of us have seen f- uh, uh, films of that. Do you know how much energy it takes, how much energy is exerted in overcoming the inertia of gravity, how much fuel is burned up in the first few seconds just to get that massive rocket or that massive shuttle off the ground? John here is trying to get you moving in the direction of the Lord Jesus, and the pull of the gravity of your sin and this world that we live in is immense. So John writes these words, move, go, lift, stretch. We've come to some verses as we read this book of 1 John that vex some of you. Um, so far as we've read this book, I've tried to talk carefully. I've mentioned this a few times. I've talked about those in the church with particularly tender consciences. It hardly seems possible to take John seriously, these words. It's, it's a hard. Verse 6, he says, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Oh, really? Verse 9 no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning. Really, John? Watch me. Some of you, uh, on the basis of this verse, these verses, you spend a lot of time concluding with John that you must not really know Jesus. You must not really know Jesus. If this is true, if what he says here is true, how can you... Possibly be a Christian. We have to talk about that. Here's my plan, what I want to do for walking through these verses. I think this plan is embedded in the text, and it has the added bonus of matching the season we're in. Today, we're going to talk about two reasons why Christ came. We're celebrating his arrival. We're going to talk about two reasons Christ came, and they're tied directly to your own pursuit of righteousness, We're not just going to think today about the holy night, we're going to talk about your holy life. We've already spent some time talking about how Christ's second coming is supposed to influence our pursuit of righteousness. Today we're going to talk about how his first coming is supposed to uh, uh, drive your pursuit of righteousness. Remember, we're always trying to stretch up to the measure of Jesus. So there was his second coming, now we're going to talk about his first coming. So why did Christ come? Two reasons, and they're directly tied to our pursuit of this standard that he himself set. First of all, verse five says that Christ came to take away your sins. Christ came to take away your sins. Verse five, look what it says. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. Here's that word appeared again. What does the word appeared mean? The word appeared means the invisible became visible. Why was Jesus born? Why did he come? So that he might take away our sins. It reminds me of John 1.29. John the Baptist sees the Lord Jesus, and what does he say? Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Same word here, takes away our sins. Now, what's interesting here, uh, John, in this particular verse, in this section of verses, John didn't say why or how Jesus takes away our sins. But immediately, most of us, you've been around, you've been reading this book long enough, most of you think about the cross as the place where Jesus takes away our sins. Look back at John chapter 2, verse 2, and here's what it says. John, 1, John 2, 2, 1 John 2, 2, it says, "...He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins." And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's the atoning sacrifice. That is, he's the one who satisfied the wrath of God for us. Verse 4 says that everyone who sins breaks the law. It says, the sin is lawlessness. This is a bit unusual. Uh, John doesn't mention the law very much in his letters. Paul writes about the law a lot. John doesn't mention the, the word law. In fact, this is the only place he talks about the law at all. And, and what he's saying here is he's defining sin, he wants us to understand it, and he's not merely saying that sin is breaking God's rules, it is, but it's more than that, it's lawlessness. Hmm. Uh, do you remember, uh, we, we've talked, because John wrote about it in chapter 2, about the Antichrist and how the Antichrist is coming. In, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says that the Antichrist is the man of Lawlessness. Same word. So when John is talking about sin being lawlessness, he's not just thinking merely about the breaking of rules. He's talking about your attitude, the attitude that sin represents. Sin is a cosmic rebellion. Um, It's a rejection of who God is. It's a rejection of God's right to rule, God's authority in the world. Uh, A teenager, if your teenager breaks curfew and comes home late, and, and, and you confront this child about it, if your teenager breaks curfew, comes home late, and your teenager looks at you and she says, I hate you. I wish you were dead. I hate you. You have more than just a scheduling problem, right? You have more than just a broken rule. You have an attitude problem, an inborn rebellion issue. That's what sin is, John tells us. Uh, we're so inclined to minimize things. It's a mistake. I just slipped up. It's not a big deal. It's a little thing. John says sin is lawlessness. It's rebellion against God. And into this world that is full of people who hate Him, God has sent His Son, the One who came without sin. One who had no sin. You know, we read the Gospels, and, and it, it really doesn't matter your, your creed or you, 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 what faith you are, what country you're from. People who pick up the Gospels, they read about the Lord Jesus, and he is intriguing to them. He's, intri- he's, he's a unique person. He is, he is I, I want to be like him. I, w- I would like to know him more. Look, look at what it says about him, what he, what he does and how he speaks to people and, and how, how could he be so sinless and so pure and yet people whose lives were shattered by their own sin, their own brokenness were drawn to him. He's such a lovely, compelling person and the reason that he is is because he never once raised his fist to his father. There's never in him any sin at all. Never a moment he said, I hate you. Only, only in him, there was obedience, glad submission. Whatever you ask me to do, Father, I'll do it. That's what makes him rise in the pages of the gospel. And the Bible says that in the plan of God, he was convicted by this kangaroo court. He went to a cross, and on the cross, God treated him like he had our record, He received the punishment that we deserved. And he takes away your sins. And all of us who are his followers, who have trusted in him, we read this text where it says, Jesus takes away our sin. And we say, yes, 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 he did. He's my sin bearer. He's my savior. Except John is not thinking about that moment 2,000 years ago on the hill called Calvary. He's talking about your sin Right now, in your life, the sin that you are committing, that you have committed, that that was part of your life this morning, that's what he's talking about when he's talking about Jesus coming to take away our sins. That's his chief focus in in this passage. You can't seriously look forward to the second coming or celebrate even his first coming without this coherently being true of you, that your life is different now, today, that your life is different. Followers of Jesus are not satisfied with their propensity toward gossip or or how much anger roils in them and how it comes out or their materialism, how much they love things or how much they despise other people, how quickly they are to dismiss them. Followers of Jesus are not satisfied with their stinginess and their greed because Christ came to take all of those things away from you today, now. In verse 6, he uses three words to describe someone who has a relationship with God. He says, no one who lives, uh, that's the word abides or remains. It's so important to John, especially in John 15. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin is either, here it is, seen him or known him, lives, seen, known, these key words that John uses to describe what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And he says, you can't claim to have any of those things be true about you if you continue in sin. You can't be a Christian if this is what marks your life. Now, what do we do about this? No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. What do we do about this? John seems to be writing a letter here that contradicts my own experience. I believe the gospel. I believe what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's sin in my life. What do we do about the fact that this seems to contradict what John has already written in John chapter 1, where he says in John 1 10 that if you claim you have not sinned, you call God a liar and the truth isn't in you? What do we do about that? How do we put that together? Why does he tell his readers that he believes are Christians, that in chapter 2, that he wrote this letter to them so that they wouldn't sin? If this is the standard, no sin, are there any Christians in the room? Now, we have to talk about this. I actually want to come back to it because verse 9 says something so similar that I want to deal with both of those verses together. So we're going to come back to this, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. For now, notice, if you keep on sinning, it is possible you don't really understand why Jesus came. All right, now let's move on. We're going to talk about the second reason he came, and then we'll come back to that in a minute. The second reason he came, verse 8 tells us that Jesus came in order to destroy the work of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. That's what it says. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I'm not sure if you noticed it, but there's a striking line in that, uh, one of the carols that we sang this morning, God rest you, merry gentlemen. It's not easy to fit all those words in there, is it? Well, first verse, right? God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. I hear that song. When I hear that song in the mall, I think to myself, I wonder if anybody around me has any idea what they just heard. I wonder if the author, I don't know who wrote that song, that carol, but I wonder if the author had this passage in mind, but it would be, it matches perfectly. Why did Jesus came? He he came to destroy the devil's work. And again, are you thinking here about Christ's cross work? You could. Satan is our tempter, he's our accuser. The weapons that he wields against us are sin and death. And Colossians tells us that Jesus on the cross disarmed him. Disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of, the, uh, of, of the, the, uh, the weapons of Satan. He triumphed over them on the cross. On the cross, when he died, Jesus took Satan's uh, uh, weapon, sin, and he broke it in half. He died and rose again. He destroyed the devil's work. But again, right now, John is not primarily thinking about the there and then, but the here and now. I think, John seems to be thinking in this whole paragraph from verses 7 through verse 10, he seems to be thinking about our nature, the family that we're a part of. A few minutes ago, John, huh, John our elder, not John the apostle, John read from the gospel of John, there's too many Johns, the gospel of John, he, he read that passage from chapter 8, verses 31 to 47, um, He did it in part to prepare for this moment. So did you follow what happened? So Jesus was standing one day. It's a great story. It's so relevant for this paragraph. Jesus was talking to some Jewish skeptics, and they had this issue, this disagreement about their parentage. Who's their real father? We're descendants of Abraham, they said. And Jesus said, no, you're not. You can't be Abraham's son because you don't know what Abraham did, or you don't do what Abraham did. There's no evidence that you're members of Abraham's family. In fact, I will tell you who you're, who, whose family you really belong to. You don't belong to Abraham's family, you belong to the devil's family. It's not the way to win friends and influence people. Look at John 8. I wrote it on the green sheet, but look at John 8, verse 44, and then I want to compare it to 1 John 3. Eight. So, for, uh, first on the green sheet, John eight forty four, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out the father's your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, compare that to verse 8 in 1 John 3. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil... Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. There's that phrase. He's been lying from the beginning. He's been murdering from the beginning. He's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So who's your dad? Who's your dad? Is there any family resemblance? Again, here in this passage, John talks about that image he loves, being born again, being born of God we're born of God by faith. Jesus is the one and only begotten son, but be, by faith, we can be born again, adopted children in God's family. And the evidence in your life that you're born again is that you cease sinning. In fact, you can continue sinning. J.I. Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. And having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers. And his whole outlook on life. It means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Verse 9 says. You cannot go on sinning because God's seed remains in them. Now what does that mean? What's the seed? Literally the word here is sperm. It's pretty bold. Maybe a little crude. Some people think it's too crude. Some interpreters think it's too crude. Some have identified the seed here as the Bible. They think of the parable of the the sower, sowing the seed, which is the word of God. Some people think the seed here is the Holy Spirit. I think it refers to divine life, divine DNA, that which makes you alive, And the presence of the seed of God, uh, because of that, you are born of God. It means that there's a difference in your life between what you were and what you are. Is there evidence in your life of your new family heritage? You were once in the devil family. Now you're in the God family. You have a new family. And in this new family, we don't sin. But what if you do? Now we have to deal with this. These verses that John writes, verse 6 and verse 9, he does this without qualification. He has no exceptions. He has no conditions. Real Christians don't continue to sin. They don't practice sin. In fact, it's impossible for them to do so. There's no conditions, no asterisks, no footnotes, no exceptions. Hmm. Uh, Bible readers have tried to understand this in different ways, as you can well imagine. In fact, this week, without too much work, I found nine different interpretations. Here's number one. No, I'm not going to give them all to you. That would be terrible. But They're trying to put together what John wrote with their own experience of following Jesus. Some people think, this is John Wesley's view... He thought that John was writing about the difference between willful sins and accidental sins, that real Christians don't willfully sin, but sometimes we accidentally sin. That's what John Wesley thought. It's not a terrible interpretation. The problem is I have a hard time in my own life figuring out which sins are willful and which sins are accidental. Um, And I'm pretty sure that both are present in my life. I know this passage troubles some of you. It should trouble all of us. So I want to I come at this passage from four different directions. I want to think about it in, in four different ways. We're going to talk about how this verse first fits in the context of the whole Bible. Then I want to think about how it fits in the context of 1 John then I want to think about very carefully about the words here, the, the context of these very words, and then finally I want to talk about this how this passage might bounce around in your heart and mind. So we're going to think whole Bible, John, the passage, and then your own mind and your own heart as we think about these verses. So first, I want you to think with me about John and wisdom literature. John as an example of wisdom literature in the Bible. Now we're going to be literary for just a few moments. So um, I I have found what I'm going to say in the next few minutes to be so personally helpful to me. I know I've mentioned to some of you uh, on smaller occasions and some of you on uh, one or two occasions, maybe from this pulpit, but John is wisdom literature. Now, did you notice in the passage how John divides the world into two groups, how he does that in this passage? There are those who are born of God and those who are of the devil. There are those who know him and those who continue to sin. There's the righteous and those who break the law. Two distinct groups, definitively and exclusively. You are either in or you are out. This is the way John is writing. It's a distinctive element of that type of literature in the Bible called wisdom literature. There's more wisdom literature, much of it in the Old Testament. Think of the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, you are either wise or you are foolish, the book of Proverbs divides the world. Jesus was a wisdom preacher at times. You are either building your house on the rock or you're building your house on the sand. You're either a good tree that brings forth good fruit or you're a bad tree that brings forth bad fruit. The world is divided into these two opposite categories. But then there are other places in the Bible where the boundaries aren't nearly as tight. Notably the stories in the Bible. Where are we going to put Abraham? as Genesis describes him. Well, surely Abraham has to be over here, right? I mean, he received the promises of God. See, he's got to be over here, right? He's the first one to believe the promise. Not the first one, but he significantly believed the promise that God had made. He's got to be over here, except for the fact that he lied about his wife, and he put God's promise in danger. How about David? (laughs) Man after God's own heart, who committed adultery and murder. So what do we do? Um, Which section of the scriptures most closely resembles reality? The wisdom literature in which there's good guys and bad guys or the stories where sometimes it's hard to tell who's wearing the black hat and who's wearing the white hat? Both of them are true and we need both of them. To understand really what it means to follow Jesus. If all we had was the wisdom literature in which the world is divided into two groups, you would either be self-righteous or you would be in despair. You'd be either self-righteous because you're over here and you can't figure out why everybody else isn't over here with you because you're so good and what's wrong with them. Or you'd be in despair because all you can see is your own sin and think is you're over here. I'm not in that group. If all we had was the wisdom literature, you'd either be a self-righteous person or a despairing person. If, on the other hand, all we had were the stories of Abraham and David, we might be inclined to be sloppy. You could convince yourself easily that it doesn't really matter how how you live, what sort of choices that you make, but they do matter. There are people who are children of God and children of the devil. There are boundaries to be drawn. There are choices to be made, righteousness to be pursued. But let's read these verses in the context of the whole Bible. Don't be self-righteous, don't be despairing, but don't be sloppy either. The whole Bible, as if in a stereo, is, is, is communicating both of these things to us. So we can think about this passage from the respect, perspective of John and wisdom literature. But second, when I want to come at it from another angle. We can think about this passage from the perspective of John and his opponents. John and his opponents, How do we reconcile what John writes in chapter 3 with what John writes in chapter 1? How do we put these two together? John Stott... There's another John. (laughs) John Stott says that we have to remember that John's opponents, these false teachers, had two opposite errors. There are some who were saying that sin doesn't really exist... They've reached a new spiritual plane where sin doesn't exist, and they're sin-free. They have no sin. They can't even remember sinning because of their new spiritual knowledge, and they've reached a spiritual plane. And John comes in chapter 1 and hammers them by saying, if you say you have no sin, you are calling God a liar. Everybody sins, even Christians. But on the opposite side of that, there's, there's some people who are saying, first, there were some who were saying that sin doesn't exist. There were another group of people, John's opponents, who were saying that sin doesn't matter. Sin doesn't matter. I can, I, because I've reached this new spiritual plane, I can do whatever I want, and, and there's nothing, nothing hindering my life, my free expression of my life. Sin doesn't matter. And John comes and he hammers them in chapter 3, and he says, no one who continues to sin knows God. Oh. Uh, and, and he is... He is polemic, he's, he's bold, he's, he is, uh, he's pushed to the limit. Sin matters, it's not acceptable, it's never excusable, it's never permitted, it's, it's diametrically opposed to everything that we believe about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. So John has these two groups he's arguing with. Now, angle number, that's angle number two. Angle number three to help us get a handle on this passage is John and his words. John in his words. Here's why I want to get the most specific in trying to unfold what's happening here. We get some help. It's not definitive help, but we get some help from the words that John uses them and how he uses them. Did you notice John says, continues in sin, verse six, no one who lives in him keeps on, keeps on. He says continues in sin or keeps on, and not just sins, but continues in, keeps on. He talks about practicing sin or keeping on, uh, always in the present tense, and always with this idea of long patterns. He's not talking about an isolated incident. He's talking about a condition, a trajectory, a direction, a settled state. What's the direction of your life? Now, I want to talk to you for a few minutes about how much I weigh. No one likes to talk about how much they weigh, so here's a sign that I genuinely love you and I want you to understand this passage. <laughs> so we're going to talk to you about my weight. Uh, some of you over the years, have you've been around long enough to recognize that there's a certain amount of fluctuation in how much I weigh, ups and downs, sometimes dramatically, right? So when Kathy was... With uh, Claire, we took advantage of one of her work benefits, and we belonged to a gym, and I I lost weight. And then I gained it back, and when Jenna was born, my mother-in-law took a picture, and then a couple months later, she showed me a picture of me holding uh, Jenna, and I thought to myself, who is that fat man in that picture? (laughs) So I lost weight, a lot of weight. Some of you thought I had some dread disease. Scott gave it a name. He called it joliosis. I had this terrible disease, all right? It was awful. So then I stopped exercising, and I stopped watching my diet, and I gained weight again. Over the last several months, I have been losing weight again. I've been sick for a month, so I haven't been exercising, and I haven't been watching my diet. So And there's so much good food at this time of year. Peppermint milkshakes at Chick-fil-A. They already sell Holy Spirit chicken, and now they bring out these peppermint milkshakes. It's not fair. Christmas brings this on, all these things everywhere, and you say, get thee behind me Santa, right? It's just terrible. Okay? It's awful. Now, when I'm losing weight, when I'm losing weight, it does not mean that my exercise regimen and diet are perfect, I I still have meals where I eat too much, and I still have morning exercise routines that are sloppy and lazy. And when I'm gaining weight, there are moments when actually I did exercise in those moments and showed restraint, but the overall trajectory of both was in one direction or the other. Uh, What's the general direction of your spiritual life? Is it toward Christ or is it away from him? Are you growing in righteousness or Not. You know what's convenient for me is I have a scale, the number tells me what direction I'm going. Wouldn't it be nice if you could step on a spiritual scale that would tell you one way or the other where you're going, right? Some of you, actually, that's one of your greatest problems is that you're trying to measure with some sort of spiritual scale. Now, my weight illustration might help you understand what John means when he says in verse 9, you cannot go on sinning. You cannot go on sinning. Now, imagine you're doing some baking because everybody bakes now this time of year, and you walk into my office and you say, Pastor, this is for you, three dozen chocolate chip cookies. I want you to eat them. And I say, I cannot eat them. Now, I'm not talking about my abilities at that moment because trust me, I am able, right? Okay? Okay. So these are for you to, I am able to eat them. I don't know, 20 minutes, give me 30. I'll come back, they'll be gone, right? Okay, I can eat them, but I cannot eat them, right? Not if I'm I'm going in the right direction. Not if I want to continue going in this right direction. I think when John is talking here about his, he uses the word cannot, he's not talking about ability. I can eat them, but not without realizing tomorrow or the next time I step on a scale that I have made a horrible choice. See, every human being has a conscience. Every human being has a conscience, but your your conscience can be silenced. Your conscience can be seared. But a characteristic of followers of Jesus is that their conscience works. You cannot sin comfortably. It troubles you. It will come back to trouble you. In fact, actually... That trouble is one of the signs that you're a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus because the Holy Spirit is convicting you. You're God's. Did your mom or dad, so they walk, ever walk into the room and see you fighting with one of your siblings, right? Something's broken and there's blood everywhere and, and you're, you're just fighting and they look at you and they say, we do not act like this in our family. At that moment in time, you don't look at them and say, clearly we do, okay? That is not the answer that they are looking for, right? It's not the answer they're looking for. They are speaking about the standards, about the trajectory. This is the way we, we do not act this way in our family. He's talking about your condition. He's talking about what you continue to do. He's talking about what you keep on doing. What's the direction of your spiritual life? Now, finally, I want to talk to you this morning about you and your conscience. I want to talk to you about you and your conscience. Do you have a tender conscience? Some of you do. And and because of it, frankly, you're unable to read these verses profitably. They don't help you. You read these verses like this, and it just makes you feel worse. All they do is they cause you trouble. I've been thinking about this for several weeks and, and these verses and what I would say when, uh, when I come to this moment when we would talk about them. I actually received a tremendous amount of help from Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter is a Puritan preacher. Um, he was a Puritan preacher. He lived in the 1600s. And over the fall, Scott and Celia and I read a book together during our staff meetings. It was by Michael Lundy. It's called Depression, Anxiety, and the Christian Life, Practical Wisdom from Richard Baxter. So Michael Lendy is a psychiatrist and he took some of Richard Baxter's sermons and he edited them so that we could read them a little bit better and he uh, put them together. Some of his lectures that he wrote particularly about depression and anxiety. It was so helpful. What surprised me about this book was how much Baxter encouraged anxious people in the congregation to uh, wrestle with how they think. He's a merciful man. He says things that are surprising to us in this book. He, he says, some of you, some of you feel so guilty because you, you feel unable to spend an hour every day praying. He said, well, don't try anymore. If you can't, don't try. You're just hurting yourself more. If you want to pray more and you feel really guilty that you're not praying more, find somebody else to pray with you and listen to them pray. That will help you instead of beating yourself up like this. Well, here's, he, he, here's what he He said, Do not overlook the miracle of love that God has shown us in the wonderful incarnation, office, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and reign of our Redeemer. Rather, steep your thoughts. That's a great thought. Do you drink tea? Steep your thoughts, most of all in these wonders of mercy, ordained by God to be the primary substance of your thoughts, You should bring to mind, he says, many thoughts about Christ and grace. For each one of your thoughts about your sin and misery, every time you think about sin, you should think many thoughts about Christ and his grace. That's a discipline. That's hard. Some of you have trouble doing that. God requires you, he says, to see your sin and mercy, misery, but in a manner that tends to magnify the remedy and to cause you to embrace it. Never think of sin and hell alone, but as the way to thoughts of Christ and grace. This is the duty of even the worst of us. Are your sins before you? Why not also the pardoning grace in Christ? Is hell open before you? Why is not also the Redeemer before you? He said this too, when you pour over the contents of your heart to search whether or not the love of God is there, some of you do this, do I love God? Do I really love God? It would be wiser to think of the infinite friendliness of God. That will stir up love of God, whether or not it was there before. So instead of trying so hard to read your heart, to know whether or not it is fixed upon heaven, lift up your thoughts to heaven and think of its glory, that will raise your heart heavenward and give you and show you what you were searching for. Maybe this is one of the the reasons that this passage troubles you so, is because you're unable to think carefully and clearly about the work that God has done. This passage is not chiefly about you, it's about God and what he has done. He sent his son to take away your sin, yes. He sent his son to destroy the works of the devil. If you will call out to him, here is what he will bring to fruition in your life. This is where God takes those who are his. Where are you going? What direction are you going in? The kids and I like to take the dog and we like to go hiking at Tukwon Glen. Ever been hiking there? Uh, Lots of you have been there. In fact, I've seen some of you at Tukwon Glen at times. I don't know how the trail is supposed to work. I've never seen any trail map. But I do know that there are two ways to get from the parking lot to the river. Um, one way is down low, and it's along a creek, and we climb up and over rocks, and it's a lot of fun. Um, the dog doesn't like water like the kids do, but we still take her and make her suffer, so we go. <laughs> Another way goes up a hill, goes pretty far, steep up a hill, and then down steep to, to the river. We take both, both paths a- at times. So when I climb up, when we go up the, the one way, we climb up the hill. The, the hill is, 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 the trail is steep enough and long enough. <laughs> I hear sure to puff. And I slow down a little bit and I wonder, when are we going to reach the top? Every now and then, as, as you're climbing up, the, the trees will clear a little bit and you can see down. You can see down to the other path. And I remember standing there, <laughs> standing there, looking down and thinking, you know, I, I was there. It wasn't that long ago that that's where I was. But now, look at here, I, I've made it up this, this far and you keep going. I can see the difference from where I was and where I am. I, I've made it up this far. That's the way sometimes it is when we follow Jesus. Fighting sin is an uphill climb, at least, some of us huffing and puffing, winded. But every now and then, you get to see your progress. Some of you need friends who can help you see your progress because you, 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 you can't see it yourself. Sometimes every now and then you can see your progress, and when, we, when you see it, you say to yourself, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. <coughs> Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And you keep going. Keep going up the hill. That's the reason that Jesus came. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for this passage, this passage we confess that is vexing to us. Some of us in particular, they feel woeful about what they see in their lives when they compare it to these verses. Lord, I pray that you would show those men and women in our congregation mercy today. Oh, help us all to feel the weight of this. We don't want to get sloppy we don't want to excuse our sin satan tells us lies that that make our sin seem small we don't want to we don't want to be sloppy but some of us in particular they feel beaten down by these verses Lord I pray that you would show them mercy that they would recognize that, that Jesus has come to take away our sins. That's the most important truth in this passage. He's come to destroy the works of the devil. Your mercy and your love, your friendliness, Richard Baxter says, is so, so much more important to us. Help us to cling to that and hold to that, find freedom in that. Oh, Lord, show us mercy. Help us by your kindness to see the progress that we have made so that we might have reasons to give you thanks for the pr- trajectory, the direction of our lives, the, the, the direction that we're going. Help us, help us, Lord. We thank you that you did send the Lord Jesus. Glory to God, because a Savior has been born to us. Truth that we rejoice in this time in particular of the year, and we thank you. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. I invite you all to stand once more as we sing again of Christ's coming to save us from sin.